0: So, this is Bizek on Stocks. I'm your host, Ian Bizek. As always, nothing here is uh, investment advice. Everything's for education and entertainment purposes only. Uh, With that out of the way, today I'm honored to have a special guest, uh, Julian Lin. If you'd like to introduce yourself, uh, tell us a little bit about uh, what you do and your service, uh, best of breed.
1: Sure. Thanks Thanks for having me on, Ian. So, uh, my name is Julian Lin. I write um, my investment research on Seeking Alpha. I have an investment newsletter service on Seeking Alpha named Best of Breed. That is where I share my cash portfolio with subscribers. I would describe myself as a generalist investor, meaning I invest across all sectors. Um, I, I don't restrict myself to any particular sector, even though my current portfolio is very heavy on the tech sector. Um, in terms of the name Best of Breed, it, it it refers to my preference for investing for higher quality ideas. I, it, I tend not to like to buy, um, the last puff of a cigar butt, if um value investors are familiar with that term. Instead, I would prefer to buy a secular growth story, but making sure that the valuation makes sense. So it, it it's a mix between uh growth. Growth investing, but um, still having a mindful eye on my on uh, fundamental analysis.
0: Yeah, and that's a good uh, introduction to how I think. If I recall correctly, we met each other through thinking Alpha, maybe two thousand eighteen, two thousand nineteen. Going over some some retail REITs that I think you thought were in trouble, and ultimately ended up being a lot of trouble in COVID. So maybe give people a sense of kind of how you how you how you've evolved towards tech over time, because I think that wasn't your focus in the beginning.
1: Awesome. Yeah. I mean, I think you give me a bit too much credit. So yes, in uh, 2018, I did identify some uh, mall real estate landlords that I felt were in trouble, were not doing well. Um, Those ones were uh, Washington Prime Group, uh, CBL, and Tanger. Uh, I mean, Tanger stock is still doing quite healthily. But I mean, that's another story. Um, At the same time, I was actually also buying what I consider to be best of breed in the sector, um, especially a name like Simon Property Group, that's SPG. I even labeled it, my highest conviction idea at one point. But um, even though the stock performed okay, it it didn't do terribly, but I I very much regret um, entering that position just because um, in in terms of how I changed my thinking since then, I, I realized I needed to pay more attention to that story, to that, to the outlook. Um, even if you are the best of breed operator in a bad industry, if you have a bad outlook, it's that's still going to be the most important thing. Uh, in terms of transitioning to tech, I wasn't that heavy in tech until the past couple of months as tech stocks crashed. Um, but in general, when I talk about buying stocks with a strong outlook or a strong growth outlook that tech stocks tend to fit that bill the reason why is because just the economics of it when you talk about one they have a very very long growth one runway right it's very clear that the world is moving from untech to tech right or we're, we're not going to move away from video streaming to traditional TV or we're not going to move away from credit cards to cash, that's just not going to happen. It's it's, it's a trend that is quite frankly, unstoppable. But besides that, when you talk about the economics where the more revenues and gross profits come onto the platform, um, at some point, you could just allow that to flow to the bottom line. A lot of, and I think that's going to be what we talk about today. um, When we talk about tech stocks that appear to be bubbles. and even if a tech stock appears to be not generating much profits today, or they're deeply unprofitable, or even if a tech stock is increasing the amount of their operating losses, all of that, it, in the long term, if you have the right tech stock, it's just noise. Because at, at some point, you just kind of stop your developer base, You don't you don't grow it so fast, and then... As revenues grow, let's say 20%, your bottom line might grow faster at 40%. So that, that is in general, the fundamental thesis for why I buy tech stocks. Um, and, and I note that this is the general thesis. Um, when, you, when you look at like big bank coverage of tech stocks, even of um, the most unprofitable names, that's the general idea that at some point they reach profitability because of the what I just described, uh, operating leverage.
0: Yep, that makes sense, and just to summarize how I think you see things, you would say that the crash that we've seen kind of over the past six months has come to an end, and you would say that this is the start of a new bull face for the tech sector, would that be right? Um, so I, I would never, I, I don't dabble in technical analysis at all, so
1: I would never try to predict exactly where stock prices will go in the near term. So. I mean, is our stocks done crashing? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, that, that's that's hard to say. Uh, but as far as my thoughts on the tech crash, I think that then- in, t- in general the the tech sector fell as a whole. I mean, there, there's there's a couple of tech stocks that did not fall, right? I mean, you're talking about like your Apples or your Googles of the world. Basically, they didn't fall very much at all. But in general, a lot of tech stocks got destroyed. Um, I, I guess a lot of tech stocks since recovered. But if we talk about like maybe one month ago, a lot of tech was down 70%, 80% from their all time highs. So, but I think investors were painting with a broad brush. Some of those names were trading at very bubbly valuations. Some of these names were not, I'm talking about before their fall. And some of these names, even though they were trading at bubbly valuations, they fell so much that they not only became reasonably valued, reasonably valued, sorry. They also became deeply undervalued. Uh, I, I, think, I think at some point the selling kept going and maybe there was some short selling. I, I couldn't care, honestly, but that the selling has became so much that people seem to think any tech stock that was not profitable today was a bubble and would never be profitable. I mean, if you were to go on FinTwit, that was the general idea. It was very, very clear.
0: Yep, absolutely. That makes sense. And I think that's a great transition into the first specific company to talk about. You wrote up a great thesis on C3.ai uh, back in February. This was clearly a bubble stock, I think. Uh, I've owned it for a while, unfortunately. Uh, but at the price it peaked at at 160 I don't think anyone could defend that valuation today. I started buying around 60 now it's at 23 so it's not been a fun ride for me. Uh, but I think you made a great point in terms of like just the price has come down so much that now you've got nearly what half the balance sheet is cash. And I think, I don't know, uh, you kind of mentioned wanting to stick to quality and not going for value, but it seems like this is kind of a value pitch in your mind in terms of there's so much cash to back up the market cap down here. Sure. Um, so, I mean,
1: just a general note about um, how I write on Seeking Alpha. So I, I would write, cover my, the, the pigs I own personally just for subscribers at best of breed. But on the public site, um, my free articles, they will cover any stock I find viable. Um, I just, I really enjoy writing about stocks. So I I mean, if I didn't enjoy, maybe I would have just not wrote so much on the public site or I might just focus on stocks I own personally um, or have highest conviction on. But I mean, I really enjoy looking at stocks. So I, I, I tend to write about stocks that I find viable but I don't own myself. I just, or I might find, I might find stocks that I real, I find a lot of other people buying, but I don't think they're buyable. So I want to write an article about it. I just, I, I really enjoy writing. So c 3 AI was one name where I, I first discussed in April 8th, 2021. Um, at that point, the price was $62. Um, I rated the stock a buy. I was long the position at that point. I had a very, very small position at that point. Uh, And I still think the stock um, will do well from that sixty-two dollar point from twenty twenty-one. But I would definitely say that uh, my position remains small. But I did more of my buying after this crash when it was around um, around the twenty-one dollar, twenty-two dollar range. If I mean, I don't have a whole lot of conviction in this name, but I mean we could discuss it. Um, But and it's it shows very clearly. um, I think what happened in the tech sector uh, six months ago. Uh, these are just, uh, there's a lot of bubble. There's a lot of froth. Um, there's not a lot of ways you could say, oh, these are values. But after a lot of tech stocks crashed 80%, it, it starts to show the value, even though um you would think there would never be any value, but it starts to show value, especially in the case of C3 AI, in terms of net cash, right? A lot of tech stocks tend to not operate with debt. Um, this... I mean that kind of hurts shareholders, and that they're not, you know, ramping up leverage. But at the same time, when a crash happens like this, it it highlights value. When I mean, you can say a stock has forty percent of the market cap in net cash, I think that's what I wrote in February, uh, when the stock was um a bit higher. The stock was around uh twenty five. So, it the net cash could be a bit higher now than um than back then when I wrote it. Um, I mean DPAI D- is an interesting name. It's it's definitely lower quality. In the AI space than Palantir, uh, I, I do own more Palantir, I and mean, I, I have I have a core holding in Palantir. I have a very small holding in C three AI, but C three AI is much much cheaper. And then you throw in the fact that they have a forty percent of their market cap as net cash. Um, yeah, but I, I think I could hand it over to you, Ian. I think because the whole reason why I'm on is because you had sent me some messages asking me why I'm buying certain tech stocks. I think you had some confusion as to um, how I could possibly see any value in some stocks that had no earnings today.
0: Okay. So yeah, I was starting off with some some friendlier territory, but if you want to jump straight into a firm, it's probably what people are going to be most interested in. So I think that would be a good good topic if you'd like to go there.
1: Oh no! I was saying that um, you had mentioned me. You had mentioned that in general you were viewing tech stocks as being just complete bubbles, and right. And I even saw on your tweets you were kind of tweeting. Every, you were finding a lot of unprofitable tech stocks, calling them bubbles. And I mean, maybe you could discuss your views a bit more further.
0: Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, definitely. On on Twitter, I, I speak my mind, and then when I write longer form articles, either for my service or on Seeking Alpha. I try to tone back the rhetoric and write a little more, uh, thoughtfully. So yeah, sometimes I, I go a little heavy on the hyperbole on Twitter, but I do think there's a lot of, uh, very low quality companies that will, will ultimately end up worthless or close to it now, uh, just as they were in, in say, 1999. Um, there's companies that have never hit an operating scale. It's like, at some point they're going to grow and grow and grow and then they'll become profitable but you look and their margins aren't really getting better and they're not getting any closer to profitability and you just had two of the best years ever for digital adoption of of things like anything that required going to a cloud or going to remote or anything like that like as much adoption as you were ever going to see in terms of a catalyst was over the last two years and so it's like if a company couldn't reach a steady state of having a core business that makes money in that environment. What's going to do it now as people are returning to the office, as people are spending more time on offline pastimes. It's just like, I'm starting to get worried about companies that couldn't make it work in like 2021 was the best of times I'd say for tech. And I think it's going to be a lot harder for companies to get capital. Now that stuff has come down so much, you're going to see valuations in the, on the private side come down a lot. And so, People have always been benchmarking public companies to the private companies and looking, saying, look, this unicorn has a valuation of whatever, 20 billion. So my public company at 10 billion is cheap. But if that unicorn can't go public now, like IBO activity has gone down a lot, then I think valuations everywhere come down across the board. That would be my quick take.
1: Sure. That's fair. Um, I think to some extent I do agree. Um, I wrote something similar when I looked at DoorDash um, one year ago. Um, in early 2021, I mentioned that DoorDash, and I, I think this would kind of fall under the kind of stock you mentioned, where they were prime beneficiary of the pandemic, uh, clearly, right? And then everyone, not only that, but like maybe for the next couple of years, I mean, they, they definitely hit kind of a peak because of lockdowns. You, you kind of had nothing else, no alternative besides DoorDash, right? You couldn't really go into eat in a restaurant or some, some places you, could, you didn't even have outdoor seating available. So I, what, what I wrote then was very similar to your thoughts that they were still burning a lot of cash um, and that, that kind of suggested their valuation maybe did not make sense because they were trading at 73 times uh, gross profits at that time where they already peaked and growth should be slowing from there. Um, so very similar. Um, but I think, I mean, so you mentioned a couple of things. Um, One, as you mentioned, perhaps uh, you you seem to have some sort of impatience where uh, we just had two years of digital transformation. So if any stock is not profitable, then that's a bad sign. And the other, and the other thing to lay on top of it was um, if the stock was also seeing their operating losses increase, that's like an ultra red flag. If I'm understanding you correctly, right?
0: Yeah. Let's use a specific example, just to be more clear, like a specific pandemic winner, let's say Peloton way. anyone that was going to buy a bike rather than going to a gym, uh, probably would have done it over the last two years, right? Like who's going to say in 2023, I need a Peloton bike now. Like everyone in the world, uh, learned about the product thought, do I want to buy this or do I not want to buy this? And so like, how do you possibly restart growth there? That would be kind of my example of a classic pandemic winner that is going to be in deep trouble going forward. Sure.
1: And I think, that one you did that was the that was the particular stock you um messaged me about was when you read my uh, public article yeah. on Peloton. Yeah, so I mean that that's also I do have a position in Peloton. Again, this one's very small. This is the one I only discussed on the public site. I did not. It's not in the best of portfolio, but yeah, we could discuss Peloton. So
0: yes,
2: well, I am mean,
1: using a,
0: that idea. I'm using that as an example of a company where I would say, how do you have patience on it? I get something like a cloud business where the valuation is going to take years to come in because adoption is a slow thing. But something like Peloton, was, I would see that as a much faster moving story where we already see the results of kind of how the business is going to look. Absolutely. I mean, so with Peloton,
1: though, I mean, if, if we're going to go now, we could kind of dive away from the high level and kind of go a little more granular with um, this company specific analysis. Um, so I mean Peloton, I mean if when the stock was above like one hundreds or one hundred forties and it was it was around that area for like for at least one or two years. Um it's definitely I, I definitely would agree um that I mean the valuation was nuts, right? But then it, what what I noticed with Peloton was that it fell so much that um if you were to just focus on the subscription revenues it earns from the business um i I don't have a public on myself, but i do like I do believe that fitness is transitioning to more of a at home fitness model um not necessarily because the pandemic did it, but just more more convenience um if you could have all of your fitness equipment at home and get a good workout at home um it makes more sense. Um, to to work out at home instead of kind of going into going to a gym, but but in any case, Peloton I view is to be one of the one of the market leaders pushing that trend. So in terms of valuation, right? So the stock when I wrote about the stock, it was around twenty six dollars. It had fallen so much that even if you assume that they just gave away their bikes for free, um, but they don't, right? Um, they they famously like the fact that they sell their bikes at um, I think it was like a Eleven percent gross margin, so they're not quite they're not quite like Roku yet right if if anyone listening is familiar with roku where roku is roku's the um, smart TV provider right so they, they try to give away their products at a loss even so that um, they can make money on the advertising and the subscription revenues um, when you, you know when you buy a Netflix on their platform um, Peloton is very similar in that they make more of their high margin business. On the subscription, but they're still they still make some money when they sell the bike. About eleven percent—that's going down a bit because of supply chain issues. Supply chain issues, but they they do make some. So the the thing with a Peloton, um, again, I don't own a Peloton, but from what I've heard is you you can't really use a Peloton. It's not so fun if you don't have that subscription. So if you're already paid at twenty seven hundred dollars for a Peloton, um. I mean, high chances you're going to be using that subscription and not because, you, and you're also going to feel guilty. You're going to want to use it, and and besides the fact that I mean, it's a, it's a great product. So, what I found was the stock was trading around six and a half times just the subscription revenues. Okay, so this is this is a side of the business where they're own, they're making sixty percent gross margins on. Right, so if you assume that Peloton is the future, right? If you assume that people will continue um, working out at home and they will continue using Peloton um, because in in general, Peloton is, it is disrupting this fitness industry. This is fitness. I mean, if anyone works out, there's not much, there hasn't been much disruption at all, right? There isn't much tech at all in fitness. Usually there's, there's nothing, right? It's, it's not, it's not only, it's only in recent years where Peloton has done something like this, if you assume that they're going to keep growing a bit right at six and a half times, uh, gross profits are sorry. I think it's subscription revenues. Um, it's the, the price is like a tech stock, right? Because the, those subscription revenues are tech like revenues, but they're going to probably keep growing at a 15, 20, 25% rate. Um, I think they're projecting around 20%, but I think it could do better once the supply chain
0: resolves, right? So. The Idea is like,
1: yes, at this, at this is company. that from
0: price increases, or I mean, it's not going to come from sales because they the sales and the bikes have gone down so much that they've stopped producing new, like, they shut down production of the bikes, right? Um, no, so
1: it, it's 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 money, so it's sales really. Um, they, they have supply chain issues where they weren't able to. They weren't able to create as many bikes and fulfill orders fast enough. And that, that's been something historic, right? They kind of historically, some parts intentional where they kind of say they sold out. You have to wait for a bike, right? That, that's that been something they've done, but I think they kind of overdid it and it, it came back to bite them. So I think once they resolve some of those um, supply
0: chain inventory issues, I, I mean, the, the, the growth can come back. Um but, but I mean, so the, then, uh, uh, that, what you're saying was true. At the end of 2020, they had 250 million dollars of inventory on their balance sheet, but now they have more than 1.5 billion dollars of inventory. There's, there's plenty of bikes in their warehouses now. Yeah. So, but the inventory. Um. So you're not. They're not going to be. There's.
1: There's going to be a difference between like inventory ready to be sold, ready to be that's already ready to be shipped to a customer versus inventory that's maybe on another side of the globe and maybe not fully built or inventory that, um, you know, just needs to be transported to where they're going to be able to sell. Um, At at least that's what they indicated was a lot of the issues with the supply chain. Um, There there isn't really any reason to believe that they have some kind of problem with the product, right? This isn't, this is, you got to remember at the, at the time when they were peaking in terms of the stock price, this was viewed as kind of like an apple of the fitness industry. Um, It's, that that's pretty close. That's that's a pretty close comparison. I mean, when you when you talk to people who actually use a Peloton, it is, it was, it's very game changing. Um, but the, again, the key the key idea here is that when, when you're buying this company at six and a half times subscription revenues, not not a lot has to go right for the valuation to make sense. As long as you have this name that will keep growing and. At some point, the operating leverage will kick in. I mean, if you assume a thirty percent margin based on the subscription revenues, then the stock is trading at twenty-one times long-term uh, earnings right now. Right. So, I mean, so, so the idea is like if if you are right on this story, the valuation makes sense, even though it is not making money right now.
0: Yeah, but the point I would go back to is that just in terms of the margin getting worse as so it's gotten bigger. For the fiscal year that ended in June 2020, they earned, let's see, $836 million of gross profit and spent $767 million on marketing. So you had a slight profit after marketing. And then last year you had gross profit of one point two billion, but they spent two billion on marketing. So they increased marketing expenses by triple and they only got fifty percent more gross profit, which would seem to be things going in the wrong direction, especially with the pandemic to help boost adoption. Sure. I mean again,
1: Pel- Peloton's not definitely one of my higher conviction ideas by any by any measure. But if if you want to discuss let's let's discuss that other point. That, that that is one you where you mentioned. I think I think of course, it could be a red flag if you have a name that does not have the right story. But losses are growing faster. Like, I mean, I, I think what you said before was like the revenues are going fast, and the faster revenues grow, the faster losses grow. Like that. Yeah. Sound, that 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 sounds like that's so easy to say, right? That sounds like an easy red flag. That sounds terrible. And if the business model is wrong, it could be terrible. But the the thing with Tech stocks. Um, and again, Peloton may not be the best example. Um, but if you're the way you invest in growth, a lot of investors get this wrong. They they seem to think. I mean, and this is very clearly seen when investors or people like. I, I think we just saw uh, the Biden administration wants to kind of ban share repurchases or at some point. You can see the average person thinks that growth happens when you're not buying back stock, but in reality, growth. Happens not from profits, but growth happens from gross profits. So it it depends on how you use your gross profits. Are you using your gross profits, um, to increase your R and D? Are you using your gross profits to increase, um, your marketing? Right. Those are how you can in- how you could invest in growth. So when you see a company have larger losses, even though gross profits are increasing, and and I note that for Peloton, um. Their, their losses kind of increased a lot, a lot, a lot of those, because gross profits went down. Um, that was, they, they made a lot less money on on selling product. So, so I mean, that's got to be taken, taken into account. Um, if, just think about it, if you're in the company's shoes, okay? So, and, and the best example I have is Amazon. So I, I don't know how many investors are familiar they realize just to what extent Amazon invested in growth. They, sure, they did capital expenditures, but the real way to know how Amazon grew was if you analyze the income statement for the last 20 years, starting in, you know, or even 30 years, starting in the 1990s, all the way up to 20, 2015, for a good two decades, Amazon purposely had no operating income. So what Amazon did, I mean, they had a lot of gross profit growth but they were able to keep operating income at zero or negative every single year. So yeah, it's more tax efficient. Yes. Right. It's more tax efficient. Um, and that way they did it was you invest in growth. I mean, and most people are like, "What? Well, that doesn't make any sense. If you're growing, your income should have been growing. But the idea is like, if you're going to be able to support a business, that's going to make 10 times more, uh, 10 times more of income in the next 20 years, you're going to have to support an R&D team that's probably 10 times larger, I mean, a lot larger than now. So you could do it in two ways. You could, you could either just take your time hiring new R&D, hiring you sales. You could take your time and allow yourself to be profitable every year. If you do that, Wall Street will love you more. Sure. But if you really were focused on growth, you would. you wouldn't do that. You wouldn't care about your bottom line. Instead, you would hire as fast as you could I mean, you don't want to kill your company, right? But you hire as fast as you could, where you could generate a good ROI. And you would just keep doing that regardless of how much money you lose, right? Because if you're going to get a good ROI, and this is basic economics, if you have a chance to get a 30% ROI, um, and you could compound that, you know, in the next 10 years, even though it might look like losses now, i mean, technically, if you're a shareholder, you should want your company to invest as much money as they could into that, right? You're, you're, I mean, this is, this is obvious, um, this is just math. So if you're the company, you are gonna want to invest, you're gonna wanna show as big of a loss as you could, assuming that you're right and all of your investments will pay off in the future. So that's why I think judging judging the business model based on their prop- operating losses, that, that that may not be the best, best way to look at it um, because you don't, it's hard to know which investments are growth investments and what part of their fixed costs are just uh, maintenance fixed cost.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I totally get you there. Uh, but just in terms of it seems like Peloton has done a very poor job in terms of turning that huge marketing budget that they've taken in terms of turning that into growth. Yeah. I get you. Like in terms of if the gross profit is growing more quickly than the marketing spend, then yeah, keep ramping up the marketing spend. Um, and in, presumably at some point you can turn it down in the future and, and make more money, or at least that's the goal.
1: Yes. I mean, and even with marketing, right. Even if you technically you could, you could choose if you wanted to spend more on marketing, right. You could, you could choose it. I'm not saying this what Peloton did, but if you wanted to invest super heavy on increasing your brand power or whatever, I mean, you, you could technically invest as much as you want in, brand, in marketing. It wouldn't, the fact that marketing spend increases faster than gross profits does not necessarily indicate there's a problem with the business. It just indicates, um, I I mean it, it could sorry it doesn't necessarily indicate it, it does it could indicate that the company is just choosing to invest heavily in that I'm not saying that's what happened at Peloton. I mean remember this this is this is a stock that's down like 80% they clearly did something wrong um because when they were up much much higher I think the price targets were still supporting that um valuation right I mean that, those weren't my price targets I'm talking about and I could check real quick. I'm just the talking street. about yeah. the general street targets. They were very high before. Um, yes, I, I, yes, I found it. I, I, at some, at one point, the price targets were well above $150. Right, so Wall Street was buying into the story. It, this wasn't necessarily um, one of the worst priced stocks, I, I, or maybe they were. I don't want to overspeak. But the the main idea is um, they, they do deserve some criticism, right? They they probably did um, not get the best ROI on some of their marketing. Um, you know, they probably, they probably overbuilt some inventory. Um, I mean, I'm definitely not saying that they were a buy before they dropped 80%. And I definitely think a lot of that drop wasn't just multiple compression. Um, but a lot of it could have been self-inflicted, especially at Peloton. I, I think that's fair to say.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Um, switching gears slightly, then in terms of it seems like you would give companies a lot of leeway to let them run larger losses as long as they're investing for growth. What would be a sign to you that the company's business plan or its growth strategy isn't working, and that the losses that you as an investor shouldn't be bankrolling a company's losses any further? Sure. Um. So i I wouldn't
1: look at the at the bottom line to judge that. Um. Because again, it's it's hard to know. It's hard to know um, if their losses are due to are due to heavy investments, you know, in developing some future products. Um, that, that's really hard to know. Um, but in terms of how do I know if they're if they're not doing well? I mean, a lot of it is you got to look at their growth rates. If the if the growth slowed too fast, I think that would be a big red flag because um, a big driver in order for this to work fundamentally. Um, The big assumption here is that the growth persists for a long time. Um, Without the growth, you're not going to have operating leverage. It's as simple as that. So if suddenly, like one of my stocks that I own, um, but I had to sell a lot of was Chewy. That was a very disappointing one. And growth slowed very, very quickly at Chewy. Growth did not slow necessarily that quickly at some other names. Um, That would be a red flag that there's something wrong. Another other potential red flags is um you kind of just use your common sense, right? I mean you kind of look at the product in the real world. Are people still using it? Are people has the reputation changed? I mean th- those are very important, and those will eventually play out in the numbers, right? If there's a if there's a problem, I mean I think Robinhood's a good example. When, Rob, 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 when Robinhood came out, they were growing users like twenty five percent every quarter. They grew they grew users. 100% year over year in the first couple of quarters they came out, but they had some reputation hits and suddenly users haven't, users user growth went from 100% year over year to um, not growing very much at all, right? So that is a very clear indication of a potential red flag. Um, but you could have known that user growth was going to stop before that because there was... I mean, the, the reputation hit yeah, took hits away the fire pretty button
0: bad, yeah. On, <laughs> yeah, and GameStop and AMC, and. <laughs> yes, Yes. Um, but yeah, on a name like Chewy though, like revenue growth concerns me there because you can, if you're Chewy, if you're a retailer, you can very easily grow revenue growth by, let's say, send everyone a 20% off coupon, uh, or just cut your prices to below where Amazon and Walmart are, and you'll have tons and tons of revenue growth, but you won't really make any gross margin. Or at least certainly not enough to pay back your customer acquisition costs.
3: Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, as I mentioned,
1: Chewy is is one example of a name that is not looking so good right now. Um it's not I mean, they're not the worst name. They're not they're they're operating very close to cash flow break even, which is great, of course on a non gap basis. But the fact that growth slowed down this much when they're one of us they're kind of a smaller competitor. In that pet e-commerce market, I mean that's that's not necessarily great. So I mean, I think investors are going to need growth to pick up at that story before the story is more healthy again.
0: Yep, that makes sense. Um, let's see. Do you want to hop into? Uh, do you want to hop into a firm, or do you want to open the yeah. line up for questions yeah. for, from people we, for a second? Or, we we uh, can uh, hop
1: onto a firm, uh, but I think. In addition to a firm, I also wanted to discuss some of the other tech names that you owned, right? Because I think oh, you, sure, you yeah. were quite bullish on uh, names like Unity or Appalera. I think... Yeah, what's, what's happened to Unity?
0: Cause I, uh, what's happened to Unity? And I want to uh, preface this by saying that I know that uh, both you and I, I believe believe, uh, own Facebook meta, or at least we have in the past... Uh, I still do, uh, and so I'm curious to your thoughts on kind of the metaverse, the pivot in terms of the business there. And then, if you're bullish on Facebook and its Meta plans, uh, why wouldn't you be bullish on Unity by extension?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm, I am Face Meta is or Face. I'm not going to call it Meta. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Facebook's was still one of my larger positions, um, and a lot of it's uh, just again due to operating leverage. I feel like. They're they're clearly very cheap. Um, I think they're trading around thirteen times earnings if you exclude their metaverse losses, or fifteen or sixteen times earnings overall. Um, but like other tech companies, their earnings are still understated, right? They're earning forty percent operating margins, but their earnings are clearly clearly understated. They're they're paying their engineers, you know, definitely sometimes a hundred percent more than any other company they are hiring more engineers for any of zuckerberg's side projects i mean so this this is the kind of company that if i mean, this is not going to happen but if a private equity were to come in and just try to strip the company of all the growth investments all the sorry all the hyper growth investments basically remove all the side projects and make it so that they're only focused on their core businesses and let it grow naturally so maybe you get like 20 15 percent natural growth from their core businesses um and this is a kind of name that's probably trading around eight times earnings right yeah, there's a lot of bloats in this company uh but the reason why i want to talk to you about unity was because to me it's very surprising it's very surprising that you'll be so quick to call a firm or some other unprofitable name bubbles but in my eyes um a firm or some other types of stuff are very very cheap but Unity. I mean, that you like to me. That's kind of rich. That's. I wouldn't say it was bubbly before. Um, but to me, that's like a rich valuation. So to me, it's like it's it's kind of interesting that you would find a name that I am buying as a bubble, but then you'll be buying a name that I find kind of bubbly <laughs> yourself. You know, so there's, there's a little contradiction there. So maybe you could. Yeah, explain I think how
0: that's you, what sets ha- yeah, it up as an interesting
1: topic. <laughs> how do you find Unity or Avalera to be? a top pick in the tech sector or even Salesforce? You know, how, how are you finding those names to be the more
0: undervalued names in the tech sector? Uh, yeah. And just, I think most people probably follow my work, but for people that don't know, I originally bought unity in may last may at around a hundred. I sold at one eighty when even in my eyes, it went to a ridiculous valuation. Uh, and then I've started buying again back at a hundred. So hopefully we'll get to do the uh, round trip on that. Uh, But anyway, yeah, I think it gets into uh, how essential these companies are in terms of uh, like if this company didn't exist tomorrow, what sort of competition would you have? And so I think with a lot of, we won't go into a firm yet, but say a lot of these SaaS companies that are doing like time management stuff like like Monday.com, if that company disappeared tomorrow, people would just switch to one of the 10 competitors that are doing the same thing. And so I'd say that the moat there is very low, whereas Unity, like you have 70% market share of all mobile games, any game on a telephone, Uh, 70% of that is programmed with Unity. Unity is a large share of the console PC market and even higher on AR. My understanding is it's over 75% of AR games are built on Unity. So basically anything that's going through Oculus, Unity is getting a rev share on, which I think is tremendous. But i just i don 't see how how virtual reality and augmented reality grows in the future without uh, without unity collecting more and more of the toll road for that. Facebook tried to buy unity at least reporters uh, claimed to have emails from Zuckerberg, which they published saying that they wanted to buy unity back in two thousand and seventeen I believe, and effectively make it the operating system for oculus, uh, but it didn 't go through presumably regulators wouldn 't have permitted it. But it seems like an absolutely essential piece of the marketplace for gaming and particularly for VR. And so I just see it as essentially an operating system for the next 10 years. And so sure, it trades higher on a price to sales multiple as as a company that that is in a more competitive field, but I'd rather pay a much richer multiple for something that I don't think you can replace uh, as opposed to paying a cheaper multiple for a company that, that the moment it stops spending on advertising, it's going to lose its customers.
1: So, what is your projected growth rates, average growth rates over the next couple of years? Like right now, it's projected at thirty four percent, thirty four percent this year. I think it we should be expecting deceleration from there. So, where where do you see this? Where do you see revenues hovering in five years?
0: Uh, Around plus twenty five percent a year in five years.
1: Right. So. Let's just look at street consensus, right? That's good. Um, just because they, they're they're above you, right? So they they have it growing 34, 29, 32. You know, they're kind of growing much higher than 25 every year. So five years later... Yeah, it'll be a little higher now,
0: but as the base gets bigger, uh, to keep it over 30, some of the other ventures, like the e-commerce stuff, would have to take off, which i believe it I when know, I see it. I think it's definitely aggressive.
1: I mean, at least aggressive, you know, to be assuming... Growth stays at such a high rate, but let's assume that anyway. So at twenty by twenty twenty six, um, based at the current price, um, I mean, so they're assuming that Unity goes from one and a half billion by the end of this year to four point two billion in twenty twenty six. That's five years later. The stock is trading at seven times sales of twenty twenty six estimates. So what are you thinking their net margin is going to be?
0: Um, but I mean, I think, uh, and this is the funny thing, because I think I can use your argument from, from before here in terms of uh, this is going to be a much larger business in five, 10 years. Um, yeah, so this- no,
1: absolutely. So what is your long term, right? Your long term net margin, when this hits that peak, when this hits that, it's a large, mature business. What do you think net
0: margins will be? Uh, yeah, that's a difficult question to answer because like the advertising where people partner with Unity and then Unity puts ads in their mobile games, that's like 80% plus margin. Uh, but some of the other create stuff uh, in terms of some of the other lines of business are going to be a much lower margin. Like anything they sell through their app store, the create store where... Game developers can buy assets, that's like 90 plus percent margin, but some of the other stuff they're doing is 30 or 40 percent margin. And so it really depends on the composition of their business in terms of where the, the gross margin will be. We Also,
1: to give you some context, uh, Facebook Facebook has um, gross margins overall around um, over 80 percent, but their, their net margin is um, around 35 percent. So mm-hmm. where do you think Unity will? I mean, obviously, I, I really hope, and we're not going to say Unity is going to have a higher margin than Meta. Um, Meta and Alphabet, they're pretty clearly setting the high watermark for uh, for margins. I, I do think margin will improve and increase there, but it's 35% right now, and they're very mature. So what do you think? Mm-hmm. You think are you going to take the over-under on 35% for Unity?
0: Uh, long-term, I think you could get there. I mean, you don't have the content moderation costs, the... So much of the incremental revenue in terms of the advertising and the sales from their their application store to developers all of that is anytime people buy stuff they just get a portion of it is like i don't know selling stuff through the itunes store back in the day that so that was all free revenue to the company like you set up the platform and then as the marketplace gets bigger everything that goes through it uh like i said you've got 70 percent market share on mobile games and more than that on on vr and ar so if you think oculus takes off or some competition to oculus the sales from that are going to be tremendous, but some of the other stuff they're doing, like the e-commerce platform or uh, the architecture product, I have no idea what margins will look like on that stuff because they need to get r- real customers. <laughs> on this.
1: Yeah, sure, but I think it's important to set an expectation. Um, it's that the goal of this is not to, it's not to um, put your foot in the, the ground, but it's to understand what kind of assumptions are necessary to generate what kind of returns. Okay, so that, let's assume. I think, I think 35% is going to be quite aggressive for unity, but let's assume it hits 35% net margin. So if, if we calculate it's trading at seven X sales, 2026 estimates right now, seven, seven times. Um, and you're, if you're assuming a 35% net margin, we could, we could calculate their earnings multiple as around 20 times earnings. So we could also calculate, we could also estimate that, um, five, from five years later, after five years, um, maybe growth decelerates, maybe growth decelerates to like the 20% range. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, so at at the current stock price, it's already trading at a one time, one X price to earnings growth ratio. And maybe, maybe you think, okay, uh, the metaverse is going to be super hyped up. Uh, so it's going to deserve a two X PEG ratio by 2026. So I think that gives you 100% upside over five years. And I think that comes out to, you know, 10, 12% annualized returns over the next five years.
0: A hundred percent over five and, days. That would be that, 14% about, compounded.
1: Yeah. Sure. Something like that, but th- these are using quite optimist. These are using, um, I think the consensus estimates for revenues are too high, um, to considering that they're not factoring in any deceleration and we're assuming 35% net margin. Okay. So we're using some aggressive assumptions, but you're only going to get 14% projected returns, assuming the stock trades at 2x two two PEG ratio five years later.
0: 2x, uh, sorry, which ratio?
1: A 2x PEG ratio, price to earnings growth ratio five All years right. later.
0: But are people going to be, I don't think people will be valuing it on earnings in five years, will they? I mean, something like seven. Oh, maybe maybe, I, maybe I, mean, I said it
1: too fast. Maybe I said it too fast. So. Something like 600. Like, like the PS they're uh, not, price to sales ratio forever. Uh, I, I went, sorry, Ian, I went too fast. So let me explain again. So I'm not valuing it based on the earnings that it's generating in 2026. I said that as an analyst, you're going to project what you think the long term that margin will be. So if you're projecting that will be 35%, it may not be 35%, it won't be 35% by 2026.
3: But sure, yeah, you're not sure. going to
1: use earnings in 2026 because Earnings could grow really fast, right? Because of operating leverage, there's no point in projecting something growing at 100% earnings if it's only growing revenues at 10%, right? That's doesn't make any sense. So you, you just apply. This is like a pseudo PEG ratio. You're using the long-term assumption based on. All right. Itself. Yeah. Yeah. I got you. Got it. Yep. Got it. So you, yep. like, that's how. We, and and by the way, this this is this is how um in general unprofitable tech stocks are being valued, right? So like if you ever if you ever wondered how are we assigning value to unprofitable tech stock, this, this is it. So based on these assumptions and their aggressive assumptions, I see Unity going 14, 15% over the next five years. I mean, is that a good return? I mean, it'll, it'll beat the market, but tech just crashed and you better, be a, you better be hoping for better than 15% from your tech stock after a 2008-like crash.
0: Um, I think with Unity, I think you can own it forever as long as they keep... I mean, I think you're buying the Microsoft of 3D graphics, and so the tax benefits of buying it, something that... Let's say it compounds at 15% forever. The tax benefits of buying something like that at this price, as opposed to buying something that might compound faster for five years, but then you have to sell it and rotate to something else. Does that play into your thinking at all?
1: um, But that kind of now that argument could play with any stock, right? I mean, like if you could sell some, no, I, I don't, actually, I don't, I don't quite understand this argument. <laughs> I think if you have a stock that's going to do better over the next five years, um, and, and, and of course, clearly I, I would hope that any stocks I'm owning could be owned forever, right? The only reason I would sell in five years is if the multiples got crazy and I could sell it, you know, at a big premium to my estimate of fair value. Um, I mean, I don't understand why this is special to Unity. You, you could have said what you just said to any other stock, right?
0: But uh, I guess this is the point for Unity or for Avalara, let's say, as well, in that there's no... With Unity, you only have one competitor in Unreal that's at all significant. And so I mean, you, unless you think Unreal's going to beat them or some nobody that no one's heard of is going to emerge out of nowhere, you own the market for a very long time. Same with Avalara, where they only have one serious competitor. Avalara is the only international player in their space that can work in more than one market. And so I think just the level of competitive moat you have on this is huge compared to some of these SaaS businesses that are competing with five other people in their vertical. And you're always looking over your shoulder because Google or Oracle or SAP or whoever can come in and kind of make you obsolete very quickly.
1: Got it. Um, I mean, I note that, um, you shouldn't underestimate. Maybe Facebook's trying to create a competitor to Unity as well. But I mean, to just address it philosophically, um, this this idea. Of Facebook
0: uses Facebook uses Unity. They're not like competing with it. That will be if Facebook succeeds. Unity will make more money. Yes. So Facebook isn't Facebook isn't building, Facebook isn't you know building a building?
1: graphic system to compete. How, how do you know they're not building a graphic system?
0: because they've been using unity and the stuff they've been demoing in their videos. I know they've, they've been part of this, but a they're since.
1: used if they haven't built out their graphics system yet, but they still want to do metaverse. Now they're going to be using unity. So there's still a possibility. I'm not saying they are, but, um, I wouldn't rule out the possibility that they will, um, roll out their own in the future. Um, but again, that's besides the point. Um, so if we're talking about, um, competitive moats and competitors, this is all just one way to explain growth, right? The way that that's why I'd, I like to look at it just by the numbers, right? If, if we're going to project some growth and it's going to decelerate from 25% to 20%, it doesn't matter if there's no competitors, it's still 20%, 20% with no competitors. It's the same. It's, it's not as good as 40% with competitors. It just, it's just, it's still 20%. So at the end of the day, um, it's really Wall Street's going to be buying earnings and earnings growth. I mean, that's how that's how the that's how the multiples get assigned, right? I mean, because that's how, that's what drives forward returns is how much earnings you're getting and how much it's going to grow every year. You just kind of factor into your DCF, and then boom, you see you see exactly how much earnings to expect. I mean, perhaps with no competitors, you might give it a higher multiple, but it's not going to change anything beyond the multiple, right?
0: But I think I think the consistency of revenue growth merits a higher multiple. Look at something like Fastly, which was growing at a triple digit rate uh, and appeared to be a very good business at the end of 2020. But then you've got better competitors like Cloudflare or cheaper competitors like Akamai that hit them from both sides. And then your growth rate goes from 100 to 10 and your stock goes down 90%. I mean, I think, uh, if you own something like Spotify, there's no new streaming service that's going to steal uh, all your customers in a year, you know. Whereas Fastly just disappeared. It was, it was the top uh, CDN one year, and it's gone the next. Essentially,
1: sure. Um, but then, but then we, but then this is where it becomes like kind of human subjective opinion. So, like m- maybe you're you're really into this metaverse idea and into this idea of unity. Um, but the same kind of thinking could be applied to a firm. Right. And a firm is trading much cheaper. A firm is growing faster than Unity. I, I think they will they will grow, sustain growth, um, higher growth for much fast much longer than Unity. Um, but just to give an idea, Unity is trading at 20x uh, forward sales, right? 20x 2022 estimates. But a firm is trading at 10 times um, this coming year's estimate and they're going to go faster. Um, so what were your what were your concerns on a firm if you could refresh in my memory?
0: yeah, I think it's a bank. I don't think it's a tech company, and I think it's a very poorly run bank in terms of when you look at its operating results compared to uh what you see from the large banks or the dedicated credit card companies like Discover discovers or capital ones
1: and why did you say that
0: uh just because it's uh, BNPL fundamentally is a banking product. Uh, one that's existed in other markets such as Australia and Latin America for a long time. And it's run by banks there. I think us banks could easily duplicate the service if they wanted to, but they felt that it, it wasn't a good use of their resources. I believe the firm is competing in a both, both against uh square and all the fintech players that are doing it. But also I believe the us banks can easily replicate the functionality, uh, and they're very good at risk management.
1: So maybe. Um but you gotta you got remember that banks typically have done um typically a focus on the credit card side where they're they're aiming to earn revenue. Are you are you familiar with how buy now pay later earns revenues?
0: Yeah, I believe the retailers pay a portion of the proceeds from the sale, kind of a sort of factoring sort of arrangement, right? Yes, yes, right.
1: So Sure. I mean, maybe someone could try to create a buy now pay later platform, but a firm a firm compared to peers, especially some. That's like, like when
0: it, I go to the when I go to the supermarket here in Colombia. They ask me how many payments I want to make it, in. and then I don't know the details if it's the supermarket or if it's the bank. I don't know who's taking the credit risk there. But this is something that we've had in this market for twenty years, and it's existed in other markets like Australia as well. And so, I don't see this as being. A new innovation. It's just something that hasn't existed in the U.S. because credit cards were widely are widely available. So, I mean, a firm should really be
1: considered. I mean, a new kind of credit card. They, they obviously did do it with buy now, pay later, but they really should be considered like a credit card company. Okay, and you would agree. There's a lot of competition in the credit card space, right?
0: I mean, you've got the the payments, net, you've got Visa and MasterCard, which take no credit risk. And then it, that goes to the banks. And then you've got the the ones that do take risk, like your Capital One and Discover and American Express on the other side. So kind of yeah, like that's five I'm, to talking I'm talking about the
1: latter. I'm talking about, you know, the Capital Ones of the world, right there, that was an incredible business for a very long time, just to just credit. To issue credit yeah. cards. But, um, so with, with the firm, they have partnerships with Amazon, with Target, with Shopify, and these are multi-year memberships where the, the way I view a firm is that they are, they're kind of very similar to PayPal back in the day, where right now everyone is trying to catch up to PayPal. PayPal is available on, I think they were saying like 70, like some ridiculous 70% or so of, of online providers. And then everyone else is at like 20% or lower. So... A firm is doing something very similar, right? They've already moved to be in Amazon and Shopify. These are the biggest e-commerce providers, um, you know, independent e-commerce providers um, in, in the world. They have exclusive partnerships with a firm. So, in, in other words, over the next five years, um, as more people move to do buy now pay later instead of any other one, they're more likely to use an Affirm firm product instead.
0: But uh, I would argue that they're, sure, uh, acceptance is growing, but I'd argue that's because the firm is pricing the product too low. Like, customers are defecting from credit cards to BNPL because the firm's not making money. Like The credit card companies are quite profitable, whereas the firm is losing 45 cents on the dollar for every dollar of revenue but a, they take. So but yeah, again, if you charge loans too cheap, then, then you're going to get tons of revenue. But again, you're judging that profit based
1: on their fixed, you're, you're using all of their fixed expenses and not giving them any credit for the growth investments they're making, right? You're, that, that's what I'm saying. Like if you were to just judge a company's profit, profit, um, profitability based on what they're doing right now, you're, you're going to be, you're basically giving them zero credit for their track record or their, their ability to execute and, and gain ROI from the current investments they're making, right? I think a firm has guided for twenty percent, for about thirty percent operating margins in in the long run. I mean, maybe you don't believe that, but I think they'll be better than that. But right now, they're they're doing um, their net loss was one hundred fifty nine million, and they earned they earned three hundred sixty one million. So that's that's where you get the forty five cents on the dollar. But it's very it doesn't make sense. If you're going to buy a firm here. There's no reason why you would look at this loss of $1 to $59 and think that's any representative of how they're going to earn money in the future.
0: I mean, except that they're a lending operation. So you know how much they're charging for revenue. You know how much you're earning from it. Uh, we don't have any example that I'm aware of. Correct me if I'm wrong, but any example of a bank that intentionally grew by losing tons of money and then made it up later. When you're a lending company, you need tons of capital, and the moment you lose access to capital, your business goes away. And as we've seen, a firm is now having trouble getting capital. That they had their bond deal out, and people didn't buy it. How long are people going to fund losses on a model like this?
1: So, are you aware that they don't usually like like that's a that's a typical bear thing to say um about a firm is to say oh they have trouble accessing capital, right? Um, and that's in regards to they had a trouble selling an asset-backed security and pricing it um, two months ago in February. But are you aware that for many years, they did not even do ABS at all? That's not, that was not their primary source of funding for the past couple of years. That's just something new they started doing. So for that to fail does not imply anything in terms of having trouble access to capital. It's, it's something new they're trying right now.
0: I mean, presumably they got their capital previously from the IPO, right? That would be a large injection. No, no, see,
1: no, no. See, see, again, this is, this is not what's going on. So they don't use equity in general. They don't use equity capital to fund their loans. And, um, they're using, they have these funding, funding uh, facilities that they're using. And that's how they've, when you've when you're first starting a company like this, right? You're going to have to do that. You're going to have to have funding capacity, uh, like uh, credit, credit lines in order, in order to fund everything. And they, and they get very good rates on those credits, um, and that's how they've grown. And they were- we they What are we defining as?
0: What are we defining as very good rate? Because if I'm a bank, I can get deposits at one percent, and then when against those, so it's hard to compete with one percent, right?
1: Um, yes. Um, but again, this is not a pricing issue, right? This is. I, I think you might be missing the point here. Uh, and again, kind of let me get back to this about the ABS, right? So. That is the future. Once a firm becomes more established, um, as you know, as a high credit, and I, I think they will, they will be able to. I think I wish, I really wish there was a bear market and a recession for the firm stock, like overall, because I think that will prove their business model. Right, you're, you're, you're going to see that their the delinquency rates do not go up crazy. You're going to see that um, their their credit credit um analysis just behaved according to plan and then that's going to speed up all of this transition. But I mean, that's not happening. So they have this trouble selling ABS, but that's just because interest rates were very volatile. So an investor wanted some more, wanted a higher interest rate on it. I mean, this is very standard. So it does not indicate that they have trouble accessing, uh, accessing funding capacity. They, They have enough funding capacity to fund. I think, I think they were saying like $20 billion or, or some like, and basically, they have enough funding capacity to uh, to grow their business more than one hundred percent, right? If, if they were already growing their revenues one hundred percent, they have enough funding capacity without any ABS sales to fund that, and that's how they were funding before. Um so, can we move on from the funding capacity? I guess.
0: Sure. Yeah. I mean, I guess. I guess we'll see uh how willing the credit market because if you're not going to get it from the abs then you sell more stock or you, you no okay let's let's
1: discuss this again so it's not about how willing the credit markets are they have agreements with the banks the banks have to give it to them this this is i mean you're familiar with the credit line right it, it's you,
0: uh-huh, but the it's banks that, can pull those whenever they want to they
1: can't pull no they have an agreement so that you can't you can't pull that That's not, that's not (laughs) like you, you have an agreement. That's why they pay the fees so that the banks give you that capital, right? The only reason they would pull it might be in a big emergency where some great financial crisis happened, big one. And you know, the, the banks don't have capacity, but that's not going to happen. Right. I mean, after a great financial crisis, I mean, banks, they had to change their balance sheets, they have the highest CT ratios ever, right? So like to, to expect a bank. To not honor their line of credit commitment to a firm. I think that's a really opica- apocalyptic scenario.
0: Oh, um, but they won't renew right. it when, when the, the terms and those are up in one or two years or whatnot. They look but, the stock price is way down. The ABS market doesn't want to fund it. Their big partners like Peloton they, are like, struggling. But why would they not want to renew it? Because they don't want the risk if the company runs into trouble, right? Or they would raise the fee. I mean, now that you've seen that the ABS market won't fund it, if you're a bank, you say, "I want to get paid more because I'm taking a higher risk position."
1: Well, they they've been operating without the ABS. I don't think the fact that they had to change the ABS is going to make their it's going to change anything in their cooperation with these banks.
0: I mean, but it's the, a very if, bad sentiment signal. It's like we went out, we wanted to demonstrate that we're a good investment credit and the market rejected us. Any bank is going to look at that negatively?
1: I don't know. I mean, I, I think I'm going to disagree there. The interest rates were going <laughs> crazy during this time, right? I think it's very reasonable to think that um, they're going to want a, a little higher interest rate on the ABS. I, I don't think that's out of the ordinary at all. Um, I, I, I mean, if, if a firm turns out to be a really poor credit then yeah, the banks are gonna pull out. But I mean, that's I mean, you would have lost your money on this stock anyway, regardless if the bank pulled out at that point, right? The, the firm they would they would have already been a bad credit to begin with. Um so I, I would say that's gonna happen if you're if if I'm wrong on this business model, right? Um if I'm wrong that CEO Levchin is not the tech visionary I think he is, and this company is not the big um tech not, I think it is yes I mean the banks will pull it out but before then you would have already lost your money right so I mean that's why I'm not really seeing the justification for worrying about the banks because they're, they're not going to pull out their money right now a firm has yeah yeah, yeah, the, the, yeah yeah I got right. yeah, yes yeah you're right their credit metrics are really high they're this is the best in class <laughs> I mean so this is like semi saying something like um I mean like think about during the COVID right I mean I was covering the um the re, their REITs that they they had all these credit lines. You would have thought that the banks would have pulled the credit lines from all of these retail real estate operators, considering that um, they weren't getting rents for many months. But they didn't. They didn't pull the bank. I mean, if you're not going to pull a bank at that point, why would you pull the bank from a firm when they're doing okay? I mean, <laughs> so Yeah, no, so yeah
0: you're, you're right. In terms of by the time the banks pull out, the stock would already be way down. Yeah, it's I mean, just yeah. It's Like how? Yeah, I, I see. I see companies like this where they have credit risk as something where you could actually go to zero Where some, a lot of these uh, SaaS names that have gotten pounded, like they're down 80%, they're down 90%, but they're not going to go to zero because you've got the net cash and you don't have any real business risk. But when you, when you've got sure, credit and banks involved, there's a downward spiral risk involved that there's not. And so I think you just need higher confidence on the right tail, like what's going to go right. Uh, because yes, yeah. uh, of capital wipeout is higher on a credit product than on others. Yeah. At, at least for now, there
1: is that credit risk for sure. For sure. Um, but, um, but, but the thing, but the thing here is that of course the long-term business model is going to be one in which they're not funding these loans. It's going to be one in which they're able to very quickly sell off these loans elsewhere. Cause there, there isn't any reason why these loans, they're not going to be priced in the same way
0: as any other loan. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Right. So mean, let's, let's assume they successfully transition and they can sell off other loans. I got you. That that totally makes sense. We've seen that for other products in the past in terms of credit. Isn't this going to trade at a really low terminal multiple? I mean, you look at all the mortgage lending companies, they trade at like five, six times earnings. Uh, the the subprime kind of lending operations that are independent trade at like four or five times earnings now. Like, why are we throwing a huge multiple on this when the steady state, the credit card, like Capital One, always trades at like seven times earnings? Like, why are we going to throw a big multiple on a firm when the end well, state of this business is a very low multiple one? Well, I think you mentioned
1: earlier about how. Um, you're, when, when we just had two years of transformation from the pandemic, you thought, oh, okay, if these companies are not profitable, now they'll never be profitable. But in the case of a firm, I mean, sure, the digital transformation moved a lot of purchases from, you know, brick and mortar to e-commerce.
0: But it going so not to, I'm going to grant you a long growth trajectory here. Actually, the fact that uh, consumers have so much cash from uh, extra stimulus and unemployment benefits probably hurt a firm short term. So,
2: not necessarily yes, a pandemic yes.
0: winner. I'll grant you that there's a long growth trajectory here. Uh, but yeah, yeah let's get key... to the terminal multiple question. I mean, I'll
1: answer it. <laughs> I'll just get it a yes. um, But the, the, the idea here is like um, the buy now, pay later, still, there's still barely touching that. Right. And there's still, they still are going to release their debit plus card, which is going to be their buy now, pay later debit card. And the idea is like, this is the kind of name that needs a tipping point where at, at some point it just catches on where people, and, and imagine what would happen. Or Sure. A firm is one of many buy now, pay later names in the country, but imagine what happens when people realize, oh, I shouldn't like credit cards kind of suck. Right. The whole point of a credit card, a big point of the credit card, especially like when it's, I mean, some, some companies do it differently, but the big profit driver for a credit card is you want the user just to, um, to mess up, right? You want them to pay late. You want them to pay interest, carry, carry a load, carry a, you know, carry a, a balance. It, it's all, it's very negative, right? So every time you use a credit card, it's like, oh, I might mess up. This is going to be bad. But with the buy now pay later, it's very different, right? They're they're going to earn about the same amount because the retailers are subsidizing, right? So instead of instead of earning your money by getting all your money when someone messes up, you're instead dividing the money over every transaction. So it, it's another way to roam. It's just it's just another way to do the exact same thing as credit cards, except retailers help fund it because when you have buy now pay later, it accelerates sales. So they are talking about terminal multiple, like this is the kind of name that because they have these partnerships with Amazon, Shopify, they're going to be everywhere, right? When, as Buy Now, Pay Later um, proves itself as that secular growth story, a firm stands to benefit in, in this country, right? A firm stands to benefit as the primary beneficiary as people move toward Buy Now, Pay Later. And then you get this kind of networks of network effects because the the real strength in a firm is not the buy now pay later capability, the real strength is in the network where they're available everywhere. That's why I said they're like PayPal. Where I think they're gonna get a more PayPal like multiple. Um as they're available a firm becomes available at every retailer, they're doing well for every retailer. Um that that's that's a real moat, right? That's a real network moat, and they've they've worked hard to already position themselves with Amazon and Shopify to begin with. So as, as far as what terminal multiples they will be, right. If, if we're assuming that they're offloading these loans, right. And they're not carrying really that credit risk and they're able to just process these fees. I mean, sure. They're not going to be a full tech, like, uh, they're not going to be like exactly like a visa or a mastercard, but they're going to be somewhere in between. Right. They're going to be somewhere in between some sort of like that payment processor and um, and a bank—they're not going to trade at a. There's no—I mean, you could grant that, right? They're not truly just a bank at that point if they're getting a cut of every single transaction, you know, in, in the country.
0: If they don't have to take credit risk, then I'd say that they deserve Visa or Mastercard multiples. And if they do have to take the credit risk, I'd say they deserve Discover or Capital One multiples. Where obviously Discover is, has network effects. American Express has network effects. You can pay with those everywhere too but they don't trade at high multiples because people don't like the credit, so.
1: Sure, but here you have a name where I think they have a longer growth wrong way than Unity, um, a much, much, fast, I think Unity growth is going to slow very fast. Um, but with a firm, right, they're, 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 they're tapping this, even if they, let's, and I, I think they may become a bank, right? So even if they're, they're tapping this, they're tapping this large credit market, Right. At some point, they're going to offer more products. They're going to, it's the, the multiple may not be like 40 X earnings at, you know, at maturity. But if, if you got this name, that could do 30% every year for a really, really long time. Right. 25%, 30% for a long time, even if the multiple is low, I mean, this is going to generate spectacular returns from here.
0: All right. Yeah. I think that's a great place to leave it. I I think listeners can uh, have a good, good view of both the bull and bear case. Now uh, we've been going at it a while, but I'm not sure if you have time for a question or two, Uh, maybe Lucas wants to come up or someone else. Sure. All right. The line is open. If anyone wants to hop on Gary.
2: Hi, thanks for doing this. And, uh, it was a very interesting conversation. I, I hear quite a bit of differences in your philosophies, uh, but it was it was entertaining and informative to hear. Hey, I think um, we found
0: some common ground too, hopefully. and Hopefully yeah. it was helpful. Well, I,
2: I liked it in part because I, I don't think either of you uh, were completely convinced by the other, and I could hear the different sides come out with a little bit of vigor, and, and so that was interesting <laughs> to hear. Um, I I have a comment and a question. Um, Wrote it down here. One comment I have to make regarding Unity, which is is one of the tech stocks I hold, is in thinking about the metaverse and whatever that might be, um, I can imagine a metaverse without meta, but I don't think I can imagine it without Unity, at least in the next 10 years. Um, And I think one of meta's problems is their... Age bracket who likes their platform is getting a bit old for growth. Um, And then I have a question about how to value tech stocks uh, in terms of, uh, you know, looking at their balance sheet versus their business model. One of it is having to do with how valuable cash is in light of inflation and wage growth inflation that, you know, I've heard some references that the 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 real amount may be in the range of 15%. So does having a large cash uh, position really give you as much uh, ability to withstand hard times as it otherwise would? Obviously you have to have it, but I don't know if you can make quite a direct comparison. And then also on the lines of, uh, value of a tech stock or a growing tech stock is um, likelihood of acquisition. And it appears to me that a big portion of the uh, value of a company has to be the possibility of an acquisition. And I'm thinking in large part about stocks that are big players in video games like EA and Unity uh, take two. Um, I owned a pretty big position in Activision early this year, and it really started my year off with a bang. Um, and so I'd like to just hear how you guys feel about cash and about uh, potential for acquisition with tech stocks.
0: You want to go first, Julie?
1: Sure. I mean, I think especially there was the acquisition where AnaPlan, that was StockTicker PLAN, they went private. Uh, they were growing around, you know, 26 28%. And decelerating they were required for around 17 times sales i think that indicates the high interest you know that private equity is going to have in tech stocks i mean so you know contrary to the belief that tech stocks are all bubbles i mean you got these you got these value investors coming in and willing to pay very very healthy multiples for these names uh as far as cash on the balance sheet i mean that it's very it's very interesting concern um i think The idea with cash, the reason why we tend to focus on net cash on the balance sheet is the idea is like, one, it will help fund ongoing losses. So it gives you more certainty that they're going to have enough time to reach scale, reach the operating leverage so that, you know, they don't need an equity offering before that, or they don't need to tap high yield debt, you know, if everything comes crashing down, right? So that, that helps boost, boost the multiples, but in terms of beyond that, right, when you're talking about a company that's flowing cash, and has net cash on the balance sheet. Let's talk, you know, uh, you talk Facebook, right? Facebook has like eight percent net cash. Um, that the idea is not to look at the inflation, the idea is to just think, what if they decided to buy back stock? You know, that's why we tend to just subtract cash from the value. Um, because they could, if they wanted to, you know, they could use the cash. I mean, like, if if you knew that. If you, if you knew that when you're going to buy an iPhone, it's going to come with a $100 bill inside of it. I mean, it's $100, right? You're not going <laughs> to, I'm not going to like worry so much about this inflation, about that $100. It's, a, it's $100 there. Um, but of course, if they keep hoarding cash year after year, that's not a benefit. That's not great, right? And that that's why in the past I've been very upset with Alphabet. You know, they used to not buy back stock. They used to just, just kind of hoard cash or, you know, Apple back in the day. Um, but even if they do that, you know, every time you look at the company now, it's still, you should still assume that at some point in the future, that cash is going to be distributed to shareholders.
0: Yeah, I think that's a good answer on the cash. Uh, and and Gary, I agree with you in terms of how you see it in and. On, on, Unity kind of on the demographics. Did you have any comments there, Julie? Do, is that a concern for you with, with so, Facebook? So the, that my issue with Unity, I not, like notice on the call, I never
1: really said anything bad about the company, right? I do think it's what they're doing is quite interesting. The idea is just valuation. The idea is just, I'm just kind of surprised, like, yes, you're right that Unity, um, if you snap your fingers, are probably going to be the drivers of the metaverse, right? But that's kind of some, that's what I noticed a lot. When I look at growth investing online, a lot of investors they kind of just buy a stock. They kind of just look at a stock that they think is really high quality and you just buy it. And they say, "Oh, in the future, this is going to grow with the internet. That's cloudflare. Oh, it's going to it's going to power the metaverse. Let's buy this in Roblox." But the valuation does matter. So at the end of the day, this is a Unity is a name that's trade that has thirty roughly thirty percent forward growth, trading at twenty times sales. That's not cheap considering that tech just crashed. If if we're talking six months ago, before tech crashed, yeah, I mean, that's that's fine. You'll, you'll probably get a above market return. I might buy a little bit. But when, when you have names, I mean, not just a firm, right? When you have a lot of tech names trading at much, much lower multiples, but they're growing much, much faster, Um. I mean, yeah, by owning a name like Unity will make you feel good, but it may not generate the best returns. Like... If I mean let's put it another way if 2008 happened are you going to want to buy a 10% you know a a 10 return or are you going to want to buy some of the names that got destroyed and you think they're going to come back right i think i think it's pretty clear it's re- it's pretty clear like you, this is not normal times you you don't want to invest like the crash didn't happen you don't want to just ignore that there is real value in the tech sector and just buy something that's super high quality that I mean,
0: you'll make money, but it's—I mean, Lock just crashed. Yeah, yeah, I got you, and I think that's yeah. I, think I like something like Unity because I know it's not going to go to zero. I mean, the most we think video game spending also goes to zero. But you're right in terms of the upside being significantly less than than if we're near about on on some of the more speculative tech names. Does that help
2: you? yeah i i just add i i've heard julian several times say that tech just crashed and i have to say in my mind i'm not or i am wondering if tech is crashing um i don't know that given interest rate projections are getting higher and higher i don't know that that's over so it's
1: possible no that's fair i mean i i think i mentioned earlier um I, i when i say like tech crashed, I'm not trying to say, oh, it's, <laughs> it's not going to crash more. This is it. This is the bottom. I don't I don't subscribe to technical analysis. Um, so I just look at the value now today, right? It, it didn't matter. The fact that it crashed is one thing. It's more that the valuations today trade as they crashed. Okay. So if they crash more, that's fine, right? You, you don't want, as long as you're not owning stocks that need a high stock price to do well. Um, it just, is, to me, it just means I could buy some more. Uh, it, it, anything is possible. It's it's definitely possible that tech stocks keep crashing.
2: Yeah. Well, let, let's all hope that there's a, a clear bottom and we can go from there.
0: All right. Thank you for the the question. Good commentary there. And uh, welcome, you. Lucas. Yep. Thanks for calling in. And uh, welcome, Lucas, up now.
3: Hey, Ian. Thanks for having me. And Julian, thanks for the explanation. I have a question for Julian. Um, wondering if you could... Uh, ex- so if I, if I understand correctly, there are three main competitors in the buy now, pay later space, Klarna, Affirm and Afterpay. Um, if there are more competitors, please let me know. But can you elaborate how they differ maybe? And second question, could you maybe talk about the credit trends? And then I have a follow-up. Sure. I mean,
1: so there is another competitor named Catapult that's not doing very well. Um, the, the The word on the street is that a firm is very strict on the buy now pay later, but any loans that they don't want to do, they just kind of give to Catapult, and Catapult accepts. I mean, again, that's the word on the street. I don't think Catapult's going to be happy with that kind of description. Uh,
2: but that's correct.
0: Yeah, I talked to someone from Wayfair actually that said that uh, when you go to buy something on Wayfair's website. Uh, if you're a good credit, like they pull your credit and Wayfair will offer you a credit card. If you're a pretty good credit, but not perfect, they give it to a firm and then a firm can either accept it or reject it. And then from a the firm, it goes to Catapult if a firm doesn't want it. So you're exactly right, at least with how Wayfair operates. Yeah, and
1: I think Wayfair was like 70% of Catapult's um, revenue. So I mean, so there, there's some issues there. I, I, I have no position in Catapult. Um, how do they differ? I mean, in terms of it's... Like I said, you want to view it like a PayPal or kind of like a credit card, and that um, at the end of the day, they all offer the same concept, right? Buy now, pay later, and any difference, like a big difference, a firm might say is like they don't charge late fees. But again, that could—I mean, there's no reason why Klarna or uh, Afterpay they they could change that policy. That's just a policy, right? Um, that's not like a technological difference. That the idea. The idea here is that for the next couple of years, a firm is the exclusive partner for Amazon and Shopify, right? That's going to be the main differentiator between them all. And then, and then you just kind of, you just kind of want to judge how you like that you are trusting the management team to do, to keep innovating, to keep doing well. I mean, you don't need to, you don't need to just pick one. I mean, I own, I own block also and block, sorry, square, right. They would <laughs> they own after pay. Uh, Klarna, Klarna's not. Um, I don't think they're public yet, but they, I think they're going to. They're trying to come right, Klarna, public. Right, Klarna's private. Soon,
3: public as soon. I'm, I'm sure. Yeah,
1: because they're they've already disclosed their financials for many quarters. So, I mean, it's pretty clear they're trying to come public. Um, I mean, yeah, I, I think that answers your question. At the end of the day, they're. I'm, I'm saying they're. They're all very similar. The main difference right now is the partnerships with Amazon and Shopify.
3: And my other question was about credit and and how do you see that right. happening? Right. Yeah. So the, the
1: credit trends were still very normal, right? Of course, of course, when stimulus checks happened, there was um, an uplift, right? There was, or at least, delinquencies dropped. But credit credit trends tend to be very, very stable, very, very normal um, for a firm. Um, maybe you can't say the same about a catapult. But I mean the, the important thing is like right now when this stock is down this low, everyone is thinking. I mean, not everyone, but some people might be thinking a firm is gonna go to zero. They they're just a subprime lender. I'm not trying to quote I'm not trying to quote you too much, Ian, but like the idea is, oh, if they're this is just a subprime lender that's going to zero. Um but I think a lot of that is due to sentiment. I think that given a few years, they're gonna be able to prove themselves as more. Yes, they do lend to subprime, but that's just because of their mission is to open up credit for the masses. They're trying to make credit more accessible, which at least for now would mean yeah you're going to get a lot more subprime people but at some point they're also going to, um they're also going to get there's no reason why actually this is a good point to discuss so there's no reason why a firm is not going to start catering more to the high credit because remember uh, a company like capital One. Um, kind of famously, they they focus on lower credit, right? Um, if you ever study capital, and they focus on getting these lower credits because there's a higher chance that they're going to carry a balance and they're going to make they're going to make uh, interest and late fees. But that's not a firm doesn't make money that way, right? A firm doesn't make money when you screw up. A firm actually will make the same amount of money if you're a high credit and if you're a low credit. They're going to make the same amount. So they they are. There's no reason why they're not
3: going to shift to more higher credit later. If you see what I'm saying, right? They're, well, Jules, with yeah. respect, a firm is showing 128 million dollars in the last quarter from interest income on balances outstanding. So they are making money on interest, right? Oh, like so, um, What I mean is, when credit cards make money on interest,
1: you're talking about a 20% 25% rate. But when a firm makes money on interest, it's not a late fee, right? This is like I'm going to use a firm. And I'm going to, a firm tells you, oh, you're going to pay like a 2%, you're going to pay some very low interest rate up front. You see, so they don't make money by you screwing up. If you're a high credit or you're a low credit, I mean, you're going to pay this 3% interest, 2% interest or whatever. I, I don't, I don't know the exact number. It's not that high. And then, um, and that's it, right? It's what, what I'm saying is for the credit card ones, you could juice returns by focusing on low credit and that's the really that's really the only way you could choose returns if you're a credit card but with the firm they don't need to do that a low credit does not pay you more than a high credit necessarily they just they juice returns by capturing more e-commerce
3: market share if that makes sense sure but uh, i'm not sure so how, how many loans are delinquent that they've made sure um i mean i, I don't
1: have it Right in front of me, but it, it was very reasonable with historical trends. I mean, I think I think it was like um so I know it's obviously going to be higher, right, than a typical credit card provider. Um because because um but it was I think it was around like six percent or so. But it, it yeah, was I would like, say I you would
3: that I have the numbers right in front of me. six point four percent as of December thirty first. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, that's what I remember. Yeah, it was
1: around six percent. Do you know what it
3: was in June of last year? Um, probably lower because of the stimulus yeah. checks. Yeah, it was three point nine. So I mean, it's you know, I mean, I'm, I'm just surprised you're so sanguine about this. Oh, so um, as the company did mention that, like,
1: if there was if there was no explainable reason, that would be kind of weird, right? You're like, oh, it doubled, it almost doubled in six months. That's not good. Um, but the reality is, it's supposed to be around six percent. But it was lower. They were outperforming because of stimulus checks and people were not, there was no, you know, people were just not having more suffering. Um, so it, it's sort of like you, you got to just compare it how they were before, you know, before six months ago. It's normally higher.
3: Fair, fair enough. All right. Um, that, that's all I got.
0: Thanks. All right. yeah, thanks for having and I think we've been going for quite a while. Oh, all right, one more. This will be the last caller because we've been going for almost an hour and a half, and so I don't want to keep Julian from from his family and
3: everything. So, last caller, Greg, you're up. Yeah, I hear you guys. Hey, I'll make it quick. If um, if if say Unity or if Tech stocks fall a little a little bit hard, not too hard again, and Unity ends up somewhere in the 80s. I guess I would consider. I think what what Gary was doing, uh, sell puts. You get 20 percent, maybe even more, due to volatility. Yeah, it's, it's, I, I, do. You ever uh,
0: look at these strategies, Julie?
3: Um,
1: so I, I I I'm very familiar with that strategy. I think Unity is an interesting one because it's there's enough you know there's enough story and hype in the name that you're going to get a nice juicy premium like if you're trying to sell puts on like a, a real estate stock, it's kind of, I, I think that's not a very good strategy just because the premiums are not large enough. Um, but I, I mean, it. but it's always, it's always difficult because like you said, if unity were to drop to 80, you might sell puts. But then the other question is if it were to drop so much, should you just be buying the stock? <laughs> yes. You're right that like when tech stocks fall and they crash, you could get, you could get really nice returns on those selling calls or selling puts. But like, it becomes difficult knowing if you should be just buying the stock at that point or selling puts.
3: <laughs> well, uh, if I can interrupt you, uh, I'll just feel much more safer, so I guess, sleeping at night, uh, knowing that uh, either I'm, I'm getting that, say, 15%, 20% or I'm getting a really, really what I think is a low price, according to Ian, on, on Unity. And if uh, if I make 15, 15% over seven, eight, nine months or whatever it is, and then I feel bad because Unity is 180, but I, I only got 15%. I'm hoping Ian will come up with something new. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I think I think with that premise,
1: I think you could be very happy with that. I, I think if you go into it knowing that's the expectation, I am I mean, selling puts is going to be less risk on the downside you know, than just buying going long. And if that's really what you value, I mean, it sounds reasonable. Unity has a high premium. I, I guess the only unique thing I will say here is I, if I were to do this strategy, I would only do it on stocks with a good premium. I would not do this on a stock like AT&T or stuff like that. I see some people doing that, but it's, the premiums are not high enough to justify it.
3: Okay, thanks. That makes sense.
0: Yeah, I think just an interesting follow-on, uh, would be any tech stocks that you're looking at that you think uh, maybe have crashed too much and would have high premiums, a lot of uncertainty that you think would be a good put selling candidate for someone like Greg? Um, so
1: it's, I mean, if you're already looking at a unity, I think, you know, a lot of the, probably the, a lot of the other stocks you're looking at are going to be quite similar. I mean, cause you're already focusing on some of the high quality tech names, high quality and tech tend to come with juicy premiums. Like even like a firm, you know, I mean, I don't know how y'all feel about a firm. That's just one example. There's, there's a lot of other, I mean, I can, I can name, I mean, you know, Palantir, I mean, every, a lot of these names, maybe they were not so. They were kind of risky to sell puts, you know, it, when Palantir right now, it's at 14. Um, I mean, people have loved Palantir, regardless of what price it traded at, right? I mean, when it was at like $35, $30, $40, it was trading at 30 times sales. People loved it um, because you could just you could sell puts at that point, but it might have been a little risky. But now that it's lower I, I guess that's that's a, that's a good, good, good good name I could offer you know like it's trading at reasonable valuations now it's going to have very big premiums I, I, but but again, I think if you're already looking at a unity, I think you probably know a lot of good names to
0: to do. That makes sense well I want to thank you for your time. this is I think uh, listeners have really enjoyed this. It's been very helpful to get the the more bullish perspective on tech stocks, and if you wanna just take a minute, plug your service, plug your socials, whatever, go for it.
1: Sure. I mean, again, th- thanks a lot, Ian. I I love your work. I'm a subscriber to Ian's Inside Corner, of course. I love, I love how you are looking at sectors that a lot of other investors don't, or at least they don't like to write about. Right. I mean, I think I think that makes you very special. Um, I mean, if if you want, if anyone listening wants more coverage of for now right now i'm really invested in tech stocks right i have my financial newsletter on seeking alpha the name is best of breed you can also search for julian Lin. uh there i cover my real cash portfolio and offer regular updates on the positions in the portfolio
0: all right and if people want to follow you on twitter what's the handle for that
1: it should be best of breed you can also look up julian Lynn. Um yeah, those, those should bring me
0: up. All right. Perfect. Well, I want to thank you for coming on the show. And thank you all for listening and for people calling in. And we'll see you again next week. Have a great evening.